Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with actor and producer David Oyelowo. If you've seen David Oyelowo in The Butler, Selma, or Queen of Cotway, you know how lucky we are that he came to the U.S. to make movies. Turns out he didn't feel he had much choice. He was enjoying a pretty successful TV career in the U.K., but it wasn't the launch pad he'd hoped for. He wanted to tell stories about some of the most fascinating people in British history. The problem was, those people were black, and the producers told him viewers wouldn't be interested in people they knew nothing about. And that's a problem in more ways than one, friends. People did know something about Martin Luther King Jr., though. But that didn't make an unknown British-Nigerian actor the number one choice for Selma. He needed the job badly but held true to his belief that people don't watch movies to see an impression of an icon. They watch to see themselves. David brings that belief to every role he chooses, and he chooses them with more care than most. In this episode, we talk about the joy and responsibility that comes with his work, the best gift a parent can give a child, and why being bullied when you're younger can sometimes lead to a very advanced sense of self. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, David. Hello. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You know, one of the things I get to do on this show that, that is sort of accidentally genius is that I get to watch a bunch of movies for homework. <laughs> I can tell my wife, no, I, I need to lay in bed yeah, and watch this, this movie. Work. I have to do this. And I watched, uh, you know, I'd, I'd seen Selma and I'd seen Queen of Cotway before I knew you were coming in. But I had not seen The Butler. Mm. You filmed this in what, 2010, 2011? Yes, around about that. Yeah. You look so young <laughs> in that first scene when you play a 17-year-old. Yeah. And then by the end of the film, I think you're 50, right? Yeah, yeah. And yet, there's no special effects. There's no, like, you don't have a wig on or a or special makeup or anything. And I just want to know how you did that. <laughs> how, how you made me believe I was looking at a kid. Yeah, well, well, thanks for saying so. And uh, it was challenging because Lee was very adamant. Lee Daniels, who yeah. directed the film, was very adamant that we didn't use any makeup. The only makeup we were allowed to have was during the older iterations of ourselves. We obviously have to use makeup for that, but he just didn't want there to be any feeling of artifice, um, uh, certainly in the, in the beginning parts of the film. And I thought, because I'm a I'm a man in my 30s yeah. um, at that point. And, you know, I have to, as you say, play this, this, this young man from the age of 17 through to uh, nearing into his 60s. And uh, basically what I had come to the conclusion of, and it was something I learned in the theater. When I was younger, I, I played Henry VI at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And, right. and similarly, that character went from the age of 14 through to his 60s. It was Henry VI parts one, two, and three. My job in that play was to convey the youth of a teenager, the son of Henry V, this great king, uh, warrior king, and this young boy who is clearly out of his depth in, in, in light of who his father was. And what occurred to me in doing that play is that youth, age, is something that is felt as opposed to just something that is superficially pasted onto your face. You know, it is something that burns within the person. So literally experience is part of what gives you age. So to play someone who 
mentally is less experienced. The disposition of that person uh, mentally um, will start to impact how they look, how they move physically. So that brings up a question of how you get in that mental state. Well, what you're doing anytime you're playing a role is you're trying to, as much as possible, eviscerate who you are and step into the spiritual landscape of the character you're playing. And um, for me, that's something I, I work very hard on. And you just have to trust that if you've done the work, if you've mapped out who this person is in terms of their interior life, that it will manifest and the camera will capture it. I truly believe that's my job, is to be and to let the audience impose things upon me as they see images as being caught by the camera. And if I believe, if I've done my work, the camera will capture the truth of that. Um, and so that's what we did with the butler. I had never had that challenge before, and, and thankfully it, it seemed to pay off. When it's happening, are you sort of sneaking around and looking at the monitor and, <laughs> and going, oh my God, I do look younger. I mean, can you, do you lose sort of perception of that or do you lose perspective? If you have a, a great director, which I did have in the shape of Lee Daniels, someone whose opinion you really respect, uh, and trust, then you feel able to, to leave that alone, which I always do when I work with Lee, and I did specifically on that project. Because for a while, we talked about whether a different actor should play, you know, the older version, or whether I should play the middle version, and, you know, we, we talked about all sorts of iterations, and I really persuaded, Nyon begged Lee to let me do the whole thing. I just felt that there's something... Um, I, I wanted to, to push myself to see if I could do this. Now, there were, there were other things I did as well, very odd things like I, when I knew young days were coming up, I would literally go in the gym for hours and just run on the treadmill and I would drop five to seven pounds. And really? then days that I had older scenes, I would eat a lot of salty food and then drink a lot of water. And what that does is, you know, water clings to salt and so you puff yourself out. So it's subtle, but, you know, I can see it when I watch the film and I could certainly see it as we went through filming. It wasn't comfortable to do, um, but that also helped, you know, and, and it was brutal. You know, you, the amount of running you have to do to drop five to seven yeah. pounds is a, is a fair amount. And sometimes, you know, the schedule changes. They go, oh, no, that scene that we're getting, oh, no. Um, Give me the popcorn. I know. <laughs> it was literally that. It was li now, we, we shot it in New Orleans, so it was a good place for gaining the weight, not so good for dropping the weight. Go get the beignets. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, that's fascinating because I guess it speaks to what an actor feels they can control, right? In terms of leaving no stone unturned and doing everything you can for it. As an actor, I think part of your job is to be a student of humanity. And the truth of the matter is, you do feel a little bit different with five to seven pounds weight gain. You move slightly different mentally, you, you, you can sort of feel it, and it very subtly shifts certain things about you. Even just the fact that you did that, that you, you thought, okay, I am now a different, I'm in a different portion of this 
person's I'm playing's life so I have to be in a different headspace I have to be a different weight but also I have to have different knowledge I ha- you know I am now a black panther as opposed right. to when I was a college student you know what now d- is at the forefront of my mind so the combination of all those things even though they are small things the research you've done the weight you've gained the people you've talked to all of those things cumulatively add up to something that for the audience denotes a shift so that they are connecting to all those little bits that you've done to tell them we are now in a different chapter of this character's life and it could be subtle it could be more overt but that's my job my job is to tell the truth of how we as people grow don't grow change don't change uh, both physically spiritually emotionally and otherwise and it's the it's the cumulative effect of all of those bits of preparation you do that i think um warrants and gives you the right to do this thing that i deem to be really quite celestial i i filmmaking storytelling especially if you are able to talk to a, a broad and wide audience with film the audience is trust in trusting you with quite a lot um to show me who i am you know i truly believe we go to the movies to see ourselves and if i am showing you a side of humanity that i hope you can tether yourself to or see yourself in then i want to tell the truth of who we are as human beings as much as possible and so i take that very seriously because i think it's a it's a huge um honor to get to do that in a funny way that's the great shame of being a human is that you only sort of get your own point of view yes and maybe that's why i mean is acting to you mysterious what's mysterious to me is the complexity of us and the magic of cinema doesn't really work unless you have what to my mind is the most fascinating being on this planet which is human beings being exposed you know i just did a play Othello. i love i did a fellow and i i love doing plays because of the um that direct contact with the audience but what film does that theater can't is a camera can hold on the human face for a period of time and you can see into the soul of a person through the proximity of that lens through the eyes through how you move through what we project onto the person so film is magical but i think what's truly magical is a medium whereby you can connect with the human spirit you know i've watched films and seen performances where i feel like I'm gaining entry into a person in the way you do a lover when you're in a very very intimate circumstance but it's not that you know an experience with a lover it's an experience of someone who is going through something that may have I may have no frame of reference or experience of but like you say I'm I'm being drawn into because of what that person is the vulnerability they are affording themselves which allows me in and then the true magic is if i see myself in someone who is nothing like me and that connection is something that i think is truly truly powerful
Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. You know, if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that Helix Sleep has been a sponsor of ours for a number of years. But before they came on as a sponsor, I decided to take their personalized sleep quiz and try out their whole service. And I will tell you that since doing that, I have had the best sleep of my life. I got the mattress shipped to me from Helix Sleep. They have a 100-day no-risk guarantee. I tried all of that. But by the second or third day, I was already feeling the benefits of this mattress. And funny enough, I've always been a guy who thought I should have a firm mattress. But when I took the Helix Sleep quiz, it recommended a medium mattress. So I thought, okay, I'll try it. And I was a little skeptical. But ever since sleeping on this mattress, I have never had better sleep in my life. And I'm here to tell you that it's a great company. They make a great product and they can help you find the mattress that works best for you. So here's what it's all about. They make personalized mattresses right here in America and they ship them straight to your door with free no contact delivery, free returns and a 100 night sleep trial. To choose a mattress, Helix made this quiz that takes you just two minutes to complete and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So if you like a mattress that's really soft or really firm, if you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, or you sleep really hot, with Helix, there's a specific mattress for each and everybody's unique taste. So like I said, I was matched with a medium mattress, and I also got the cool mattress because I tend to get hot, and I'm also a side sleeper. And since then, I've found that I get longer sleep, I dream more, I wake up less, and in general, I'm just more comfortable And the other benefit for me is that I've had a lot of lower back problems in my life. And since getting this mattress, I don't have that lower back issue that I often had waking up in years past. So I love my mattress, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress of 2020 by GQ, Wired Magazine, and Apartment Therapy. So if you want a better night's sleep, go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I'm guessing you will. And here's the best thing. For listeners of our show, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash off-camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off-camera for up to $200 off your mattress order. Thanks, and now back to the show. What I hear you saying is that with every role comes an opportunity and therefore an obligation to, to put something in it that can maybe transfer and maybe change someone else's life. Do you, do you feel that way sometimes about the approach to the, the characters you choose or the, the work you choose to do? I've resisted leaning into the notion that, um, you know, I do what I do for, for reasons other than entertainment and enlightenment. But that would be disingenuous because I think the opportunity I'm afforded as an actor, the opportunity that storytellers are afforded, especially as a black actor, the roles I gravitate towards tend to be about breaking down prejudice. And prejudice is born out of fear, uh, fear of the unknown, fear of uh, that which is not you. And I think as human beings, the more we know about each other in a truthful way, the more the complexity that we all share 
is revealed and yet how similar we are, regardless of background, regardless of culture, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, that to me, I know for a fact, breaks down prejudices. You know, I'm someone who has lived substantial times of my life in Europe, in Africa, and now in America. And to be black and male in all of those continents is very different. Um, but there are certain things that are the same and certain things that are challenging. But at the end of the day, the thing that I have learned from living on those continents is the difference between you and I is fairly minimal um, and is to do with the nuance of culture, perception, prejudices, biases we may have. Education. But education. But fundamentally, you know, the, the differences between us are not as gaping as from a perception point of view, if, if we are in a place of ignorance as to each other's backgrounds, they feel more gaping than they actually are. And I think that film is a way to illustrate that. You know, one of the, the great delights for me in playing Dr. King in Selma was when people watch that film and are able to identify with him because my job was to humanize him, not to accentuate the iconography of him. Because that's when you can then see greatness in yourself. You know, when all you know of Dr. King is the I have a dream speech or maybe the I have a dream phrase and the fact that he was this great man, great civil rights leader, you're able to disassociate yourself from him and say, oh, well, that was Dr. King. I, I'm not someone who can speak up for injustice or, or who can, within my own family, my own community, my own environment, you know, do the likes of which he did. But when you see that he's a flesh and blood flawed guy who goes through things that you may well go through, have gone through, or may well in the future go through, it shifts things. And I think that is powerful. I agree. And I think that's the thing I took away from Selma was similar to the experience I took away from A United Kingdom, which is mm. your most recent film, mm. which is that someone has to go first in those situations, yes. right? Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about the specific challenges that you have, because you've done a lot of uh, historical narrative pictures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've done The Butler, Selma, this most recent one, The United Kingdom. The Help. The Help, Lincoln. Lincoln, Red, right. ta I mean, Red you've, Tales. Yeah. You've done a lot of historical narratives, and I think that the challenge there is how do we present this history in a way that's both entertaining and also connects with an audience, mm. but that also does justice to what really happened. What are the inherent challenges that come along with doing a, doing a narrative film that deals with historical facts that we're all semi-aware of? When you're doing a historical film, for me personally, I'm only interested in doing them if they have something to say about now. If it's purely about history lesson, if it's purely nostalgic, I don't really see the value. A United Kingdom, to me, is both a timely and timeless story because it's about the power of love and how the love between two people can overcome truly insurmountable odds. I mean, you talk about they went up against nations. They yeah, we should say that this is a film that took place, the, the events took place in 1947. That's right. Between a man who was in line to be 
king in Botswana land. That's right. He's in London. He's going to Oxford. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and his education, he meets a clerk. Mm. They fall in love. Uh, she's Ruth Williams, played by Rosamund Pike. Rosamund Pike. Yeah. And, and they want to be married, and they get two nations in you know, and political furor over this idea. Apartheid's coming into South Africa, which shares a border with Botswana land. And all of a sudden, you have the UK looking at their trade interests and needing to prevent this, this marriage of a rather small land. Mm. That, and, and it becomes, and yet, I never heard of this story. I know. How did that connect to now for you? Intolerance is something that has reared its ugly head yet again. Um, in, in America, um, fear of the other, um, the marginalization of people for their color, for their gender. Um, it's with us. We, we, we can't deny it. I think that a lot of people made the mistake when Obama became president, uh, thinking that are we about to go into a post-racial America? And quite the opposite uh, was, of course, the case. People try to blame uh, Obama for the resurgence of some of the uglier side of uh, racism that's reared its head during his tenure. I would argue that it was because you had a powerful black man in a leadership position that certain elements consciously or subconsciously found that so problematic that the prejudices that were still there and have been lying dormant resurfaced in ugly, ugly ways. Um, and, you know, people felt a need to express their grievances, whether you're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement or yeah. the protests or the amount of black men being subjected to police brutality. You know, all these things that we've seen, protests, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 60s, really. And so the marriage between this black man and this white woman uh, meeting so much opposition, you know, is is all to do with this notion, this perception that one group is right and another group is wrong. One group is better and another group is lesser. Even though Suretsikama was heir to the throne of his nation, you know, in the UK at that time, Ruth Williams was marrying beneath herself. The twist with the United Kingdom is that in Botswana, Suretse, as heir to the throne, is marrying a commoner who is beneath himself. Right. And so the film and the story does this brilliant thing of showing that prejudice is not the, uh, the, the, the pure prerogative of white people. You know, you can have that with anyone. And the truly beautiful thing is when two people, for whatever reason, just don't see that, arguably, naively, just go, we're going to be fine, and then have to deal with that and have to hold a mirror up to people who have a problem with them and say, what you're saying, what you're doing doesn't make sense. Because that's my, my point of view, is prejudice 
fundamentally doesn't make sense. It is learnt behaviour. Children, by and large, don't have it. It is something that they gain through their culture, their upbringing, yeah. what, what they see. That's the universality of the film. The fact that everyone, I think, either knows what it is to be in love, aspires to be in love. Unlike Selma, where you're talking about voting rights, where your, your average white person who's never been de denied the right to vote it's not necessarily going to immediately be like, oh my goodness, but anyone and everyone, you know, the right to love who you want to love and marry who you want to marry is something that I think can and does connect with everyone. And yet you have this story, which I also, as a person of African descent, didn't know this story, I'm ashamed to say. And yet it is anyone and everyone who's seen it has said, I can't believe I didn't know this happened. And oh my goodness, what an amazing story. Yeah. And so those are all reasons for which I, I think it's a, it's, it's a timely film. So you were both a producer and an actor on this. Mm -hmm. And I would think that the challenge as a producer might be different than your challenges in, as an actor on it. Yes. Is that a new thing for you to deal with? How do we present this complex story in a way where people can see both sides enough to be able to put themselves in both positions? Yes. But also, how do we balance the love story so people can feel it? I mean, did you go through that? It was a big challenge with the film to, to balance the love story and the politics because at the end of the day, I don't think anyone goes to a movie to be bogged down by the very nuanced and specific politics of 1940s Great Britain, South Africa, and Botswana. But you have to catch the audience up but, to speed. But, but you, yeah, it, that has to be the backdrop, but that can't be what overwhelms that which is universal, which is the love story. But everything about the challenges these two faced was going through a filter that was political, even though what was truly going on was racial uh, and and to do with prejudice, but it was all couched in politics. So you have to understand the politics in order to see their challenges and what they had to go through. But at the end of the day, it's a love story. Um, and so that was, yeah, it was a really tricky balance to strike through the development of the script. But that's where the genius of Ama Asante, who directed the film, came to bear. Because, you know, when we were talking to directors, and I very specifically uh, targeted Ama to direct the film, and what clinched it for me is when she said, with this film, I feel anything political that is in the film has to be something that moves the love story forward. Uh -huh. If it doesn't, it doesn't belong in the film, regardless of whether it happened or not, um, regardless of whether it's politically interesting or not. If it doesn't move the love story down the field, it doesn't belong in the movie. And I thought, we have our director, because that, to me, is, is what it has to be in order for anyone and everyone to be able to plug into the film and feel like they are watching something that they can um, be engaged with. Do you think a male director would have solved that in the same way? We talked to a lot of male directors and none of them did. Really? Because I think men are more, by and large, I don't want to generalize, but are more uh, interested in the politics. A lot of the men I spoke to didn't gravitate towards the love story with the energy that I personally wanted. Certainly, you know, and, and a lot of them were white male directors. They were more focused on Ruth than Suretze. And for me, that's the protagonist. Not because I get to play him, but A, I haven't seen an African prince 
on film before, apart from Eddie Murphy and then coming to America, which is a very different, <laughs> which is a uh, very different spot on portrayal. A, a genius <laughs> movie. I truly mean that. I laugh my head off when I watch it. But you know, they gravitate. We all do. We gravitate to what we know and what we're interested in. So a lot of the men directors we we talk to would gravitate towards the politics and gravitate to what the, for them. Ruth was the one who was undergoing this massive challenge. Oh my goodness, she goes to Africa and it's so hot. And there she, you know, and, and I go, guys, Soretzi is giving up his kingdom and London's pretty cold yeah. for a guy, for a guy used to be, you know, and it, it, it's- There's a bias there, right? There's a bias, which we all have. My bias to see Soretzi front and center in that story is tied to being a person of African descent, is tied to being an actor who, the reason why the film took so long to get off the ground is because it's harder to get a film made with a black protagonist over a white protagonist. You know, if it was a, a white prince from the UK or whatever, the film would have been made 20, 30 years ago. Right. For me, it does make a difference that Amma was not only a woman, but a black woman, not only a black woman, but a person who was also of African descent, having grown up in the UK like me. So she shares my perspective, which is the very specific and nuanced um, thing that is to call yourself British and African all at the same time, which I do, which Amma does. And this story traverses Great Britain and Africa, it traverses the self-possession of being a person from a royal family who also uh, um, espouses and respects British education, which is why he was in the UK. Right. I, I have experienced both those things. Um, but to be marginalized by the country that has given you so much um, and is subtly saying, go back to where you came from, which I've also felt, which Amma has also felt. So that very specific point of view bakes itself into the narrative and in my opinion makes the film uh, something that you haven't quite seen before because of who's getting to tell the story. You know, this film in different hands with a different perspective would have a, an American journalist, white journalist, crowbarred in whose <laughs> point of view is the film and Ruth and Soretzi's story is playing out as this person is trying to understand how it's happening, why it's happening, is, you know, reporting back to his editor in, the, in, in, in New York about this story, but he has this sort of love story on the side and is reflective of Ruth and Soretzi's sort of B-plot on the side. And, you know, that's what we've had up until now, yeah. is an outsider perspective on these great narratives that are not being told through the eyes of the true protagonists because because there is this notion that the world isn't ready yet to step inside the shoes of a black man or to step onto the continent that is Africa and feel it and own it and to be there enough to go, what would I do under these circumstances? You know, Queen of Cartway that you mentioned earlier, yeah. that film, it's amazing, it's a miracle that film got made by Disney because it has no white protagonist, it's a very authentic African story, it's set in a Ugandan slum, and the protagonist is a 10-year-old girl who sells corn and goes on to become a chess champion. And the accents weren't dumbed down, and they weren't subtitled. Right. That is a miracle that that film gets made in an in that pure of a form where it serves the story and not the audience 
uh, or the expectations of what the audience is going to tolerate. Right. And every day I speak to yet another person who's never been to Uganda, who knows nothing of that culture, who is, couldn't be further away from it in terms of their experience, and they feel Fiona Mutesi, the protagonist. They feel my character and, and, and what he did for that girl and what he did for his community. And they come away going, I want to do that. I want to be a mentor to my children or people in my community. I want to be generous in that way. I want to be self-sacrificial in a way that impacts my community. And, and for me, that's the reason you do that movie, is that you can see a film about people who are not you, who from a perception point of view couldn't be more different to you, and yet are you. You know, that's why what we were talking about earlier in terms of how I, I deem this thing celestial. I do think there is something magical, spiritual, um, about how you can touch someone who you will never meet um, by doing a film in a place they will never go with a narrative that they know nothing about, and yet it impacts the way they see their community, their family, their daughter, their life, and their perception of those who look nothing like them. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you think you may be depressed, or if you're feeling anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed, BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are trained to listen and to help. Now, with BetterHelp, you can talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience from wherever you're comfortable. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, such as, you know, anxiety, depression, grief. They deal with relationships, sleep disorders, LGBT matters, self-esteem, family conflict, and more. They can give you access to help that may not be available in your area. So what you do is you fill out a questionnaire and it helps assess your specific needs and you get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. And then you can easily schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus you can exchange unlimited messages. Everything you share is confidential. And if for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time, at no additional charge. So join the million-plus people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp counselor. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, they are currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. BetterHelp is an affordable option for therapy, and our listeners get 10% off the first month with the discount code CAMERA. You can get started today at betterhelp.com slash camera. That's betterhelp.com slash camera. Now back to the show. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was, I feel like there's a lot of parallels to your own life with a United Kingdom, just in terms of some of the things that you've, you've dealt with in terms of be, having sort of a foot in two nations and... and uh, you, you come from royalty. Yeah. You, I looked up in Lagos, I looked up Oyelo Street. <laughs> about two miles from the water and it looks like a nice little area, but it yes. doesn't look grand. But no. point being that there's a lot in common with this film for you. Absolutely. And, and which, of course, fueled my passion to, to get it done. But, you know, I don't think bias is a bad word. I don't think it's, a, it's something that's wrong. You can't not have bias. You can't not have it. And I think my bias on the basis of the parallels between my life and 
and this story and, and how I saw myself in the story um, means that I really want to see that story get told because it is so untold. And that is the byproduct of not only Western society, but world society. You know, who's getting to tell the, the history? Who's getting to tell the stories? Whose history is of value? For me, personally, I've seen and I've been in some films set in Africa where the negative narrative is what's pervasive. Child soldiers, dictators, disease, poverty. That's the framing for so many political unrest uh, of so many films that are set in Africa that cross over to the West. That is a truism. But those things exist in America. They exist in Europe. That's not the overriding narrative cinematically in the media that comes out of America or Europe, which affects the perception of the West in the rest of the world. Absolutely. So if I have lived in Nigeria for seven years, as I have done, if I am the son to a very self-possessed man who is of royal descent, my father, and uncles who are princes, and I'm a prince myself, and I have had a life that flies in the face of a lot of the narratives I see that are supposedly a reflection of my background and where I'm from that don't really show the true complexity of who I am, then it behooves me, if I can, to shift that narrative on the basis of truth. And so that's why when I happen upon a story like a United Kingdom, uh, Suretse Kama and Ruth Williams, I'm passionate about seeing that get told because it's a true story, undeniable, and it shows a leader who loves his people. It shows a man who, like you say, he is prepared to be first in doing that which I think is the epitome of love, which is to sacrifice, to sacrifice oneself. So often in movies, what we see as love is actually lust. Love is to sacrifice yourself, is to, is to give without the notion of getting back. It's the best of us. And to have a leader who did that for his woman, for his country, and for his conviction is reflective of what I've seen my, my father do for my mother, do for his three sons, and is a truism that I don't get to see enough of in film. So yes, I saw part of my experience in that story, and with gaining just enough notoriety to see it come to fruition, it became um, a passion of mine that probably wouldn't be the case if it didn't reflect my experience. Well, look, in a way, you're, you're going first. In that, in that, I think this is a fresh perspective on on making films and and the the roles you're choosing to take. You're not just taking the roles that you're offered or getting. I want to talk about that. I wanted to start with your upbringing a little bit because I think um, it's interesting to know how you got into acting. And uh, mm. because from what I've read, your father wanted you to be a lawyer. Yes. Wanted wanted a life for you that was very stable. Is is the mm-hmm. reading between the lines that I got? Yeah, absolutely. Tell me how you found acting. I found acting completely by accident. It was, I'd always loved movies, I always loved watching television, but it was just, my, my upbringing was one whereby, you know, a proper job um, was not artistic, was not um, something as frivolous as that. Was it, it was, fun? No. 
<laughs> it was on the basis of a lot of study, um, uh, preferably as much and, and as many years as can be applied to educating yourself as possible. As many MBAs, PhDs, you know, stay being educated for as long as you can uh, to have as many letters after your name as possible and then go and earn lots of money by being bright and uh, brainy and kill yourself by not seeing your kids for, 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 for many years. That's, that sounds that, horrible. That, it, it does sound horrible, which is why I didn't do it. Um, but um, it's what was valued by my parents. It's very... Um, typical uh, with Nigerian parents to be obsessed with academia. And my dad and mom had three sons. They wanted a lawyer, an engineer, and a doctor. And for whatever reason, I was going to be the lawyer. And um, I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. So, And I really respect, admire, and love my dad. And okay, I'll, I'll do that. But did cracks appear in the... like? D- did you notice yourself getting drawn away from that ever by love for movies? Like, did, did questions ever pop up even before you discovered it? There was nothing I was passionate enough about when I was younger. This is like, you know, 10, 11, 12. There was nothing else I was passionate enough that thought, ooh, this is drawing me the other, the other. And I, you know, and my dad's voice was so resounding in my life that I don't even know that I allowed for that. But I loved painting. I loved drawing. You know, I loved sculpture. And I was good at it. And, but again, it just... It wasn't. It was like being good at swimming. You know, what am I going to do? Going to swim for a living? You know what I mean? That's what was drawing with it. I know that that's not what I was going to do. I didn't associate joy with ultimately what I would do professionally. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it was just just my my my. Because I think that's normal. You're right. But, but it's sad that that's normal. I know, but it's. I think it's because it's the experience of so many people that. You know, what you do to earn money is that which gives you the means to go off and have fun elsewhere. I don't really, even to this day, know what my dad is truly passionate about because he worked very hard and his passion was providing for his family. You know, giving us security, loving. That's his way of demonstrating love. And and that's what I grew up with. So that's, you know, for my family, that's what it was going to be. I was going to kill myself to show them how much I love them by how hard I work to give them security. So that force was very prevalent in my life. And then uh, I had, we had moved back to Nigeria when I was six. And then, then we moved, a, a military government came into play in Nigeria that made life very difficult. So we moved back to the UK when I was 13 in uh, 1989. So we were, we were in uh, Nigeria for six, seven years. And when I moved back, um, I was, you know, g- going to a church uh, with my parents where I, you know, I really adored my pastor's daughter. And she wouldn't talk as to one me. Does. As one does. If you saw her, you'd know what I, why. Um, and uh, one day she asked me on what I thought was a date um, to the theater and of course, you know, my, all my answers, my, all my prayers had been answered. I was going to go on this date with her. And uh, I plucked a rose from my mom's garden 
I turned up at the train station, was about to hand it to her, and the look she gave me really showed that she didn't quite perceive this date the way I did. This was a friend situation. This was not only a friend situation, but like what I went on to find out, it was it was a purely self-serving situation. She had basically taken me to the National Theatre where there was a youth theatre, and they were they were very low on boys, and um, to ingratiate herself to the director, she had brought this boy to come and make up the numbers. Um, and there I was thinking, oh my God, we're going to go on this date. So I thought we were going to go and see a play, not turn up and be a part of this youth theatre. I turned up, they were warming up, and actors warming up is a very odd thing. The noises made, the... And, I just and, you're, and you're just thinking, what will my dad think of this? I thought she'd taken me to a cult. I thought <laughs> the pastor's daughter is part of a cult and she's now trying to indoctrinate me, get me out. I need to um, talk to the pastor about I need this. To talk, she's going to tell your dad. <laughs> um, but uh, I liked her enough that I kept on going to this theater group. And what actually happened is one day there was a train strike. The three boys who were being teed up to play the lead in this play we were rehearsing were late. And this was about six months in. And uh, I was very shy, sitting in the corner, had no interest in, in being front and center at all. But I'd clearly been watching what these guys had been doing and thought, well, how would I do it? And so the, the director unhappily and begrudgingly went, oh, David, because I was the only boy that had turned up on time and we were low on boys as it was. But David, just read in the lines and, and, and you know, we'll wait for, for the guys to turn up. So I did the scene the way I had sort of pictured it in my head. And after I had done the scene, the room went dead silent. Just not, a, you could hear a pin drop. And I thought, oh, no, I clearly butchered that. And a week later, I was cast as the lead. So you floored the place. Apparently, I didn't realize till I was literally, I kid you not, I remember the circle we were sat in and they were reading out who was playing what roles. And I heard my name. It was the oddest. It was like being underwater and hearing sounds. I, was, I heard my name in relation to the lead character. And I had, I had only ever read that character that one time. Every other time, it was these other three guys who were, who were you know, being switched out. To, to the, and so you could see everyone else in the circle was going, what, he, including me. <laughs> so the very first play I ever did was at the National Theatre on the Cottesloe stage playing the lead. Accidentally. Accidentally. Well, this is a lesson not to be late to rehearsal. It really is. Um, you know, no matter what's happening with the trains, get there. Get an Uber, whatever you can to get there. So does your dad come to the, like, does he, do you break it to him? Dad, I'm, I'm the lead oh, of this play. No. Oh, no. My dad didn't come and see that. My mom came and saw it. And, and you're like, oh, this is wonderful to see you on the stage. You know, but, that, but it was kind of like, uh, oh, this is an odd curiosity, you being in a play. My dad, you know, I, no, 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 no. It, that would be tantamount to, at that stage, inviting my dad to a strip show. <laughs> that, that I was the lead Chippendale. Uh, <laughs> so, so, no, no, my dad didn't come to that one. Um, 
So, but I kept on doing this youth theatre thing. I ended up taking um, theatre studies as an as an A level, so as a subject in in high school. Effectively, did someone pull you aside and say you have something worth pursuing? Because I would imagine at that age you have no idea how to judge the landscape of where you are. Exactly right. No, I had a teacher called Jill Foster, who taught me in high school theater, and she did exactly that. I was about to go to Oxford Brookes University to do law. I so was, you're 17 at this point? Or? Yes, I bumped into her and she said, David, I wouldn't say this to all of my students, but I truly think you could make a life of being an actor professionally. And it was the first time anyone had ever said that to me, and she said, I'm, I want to help you. And so she helped me with my application to drama school uh, and with my audition pieces, and I got a scholarship to go to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts. So my dad had, you know, I was gonna go and do law. There was no, he hadn't seen any of my plays. And so I got this scholarship. So I remember just being terrified going to my dad saying, um, Daddy, I, uh, I got into drama school. And he goes, what is drama, what, what is drama school? And I said, but I got a scholarship. He goes, ah. Scholarship, we can tell everybody back home that my son the scholar. So literally, he heard drama school for like half a second. All he took from the conversation was I'd got a scholarship. And so if someone somewhere was going to be paying for me for three years of my education somewhere, he, he was cool. So that was, okay. that was it? That was it. I don't know what he thought I was doing for the three years, but he knew I had a scholarship to do it. Um, and so I went to a Lambda for three years. And in the midst of that, he kind of went, are you, are you going to be an actor? He thought I would kind of get over it in the same right. way that, you know, if you're really wanting a tattoo, you'd eventually realize it's a bad idea or whatever. And, uh, and I never got over it. And it wasn't until I graduated from Lambda, was at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then I played Henry VI at the Royal Shakespeare Company. How old were you then? I was 24. And for people who aren't up on history... Yeah. Henry VI was white. He was white. So that's a big deal. Yes, it was. I was the first black actor ever to be afforded the opportunity to be playing a king at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which became this sort of big deal at the time. I didn't realize when I'd been cast. Um, and I was one of the youngest people ever to get to play. I think Kenneth Branagh beat me by a year. He played Henry V at 23. Oh, my God. Um, that's, that's how you tell your dad you're not going to be a lawyer. It is. It is. Because it wasn't only it's Henry extreme. The, it's the it, extreme it, version. It, and extreme barely scratches the surface because it was in Henry VI parts one, two, and three. And on a Saturday, we would do all three plays in a day. And so we'd start at 10.30 in the morning and finish at 10.30 at night. Um, and I played Henry VI through those three plays. And so my dad one of the first shows he ever came to see me do was 12 hours of Shakespeare. Oh my and my dad, plus a cozy room, plus a comfy chair, equals sleep and very loud snoring. So literally, I had my, my wife, who I'd, you know, we had got married quite young. We got married at 22, which is another thing my dad was went ballistic over. How oh, can you marry you at 22? Well, you cannot marry, you know. It's a whole other story. Um, but my wife was sat next to him with 
uh, an elbow ready to poke and mints ready to keep him sort of <laughs> awake. But he didn't need either. For 12 hours, he stayed awake for really? the whole thing. And I'll never forget it the, at the stage door afterwards, because my dad had moved to the UK in the 60s and 70s and had faced a lot of racism, a lot of prejudice. He'd had hot coffee thrown at him and spat at. And so at the stage door after he had seen this performance, he said, I'll never forget it. He said, I cannot believe they allowed a black man to play the King of England and it is my son. And that was the moment beyond which everything changed. You know, he's now my, my biggest fan. What a crazy way to gain an entree into this profession. <laughs> yeah. And I hear you say, you know, your father was upset that you were married so young, but how did he feel about the fact that you, uh, that you married, uh, that you didn't marry a black woman? It's so funny because Typically, people would probably assume that Jess's parents, my wife's parents, may have been the ones who had a problem. With the problem with it. It was really quite the opposite. You know, they couldn't have been more supportive, more wonderful. But again, because of what my dad had faced in terms of prejudice, when I told him I wanted to marry Jessica, what he said to me... <laughs> What he said to me was, one day she's going to wake up and realize you are black. What do you think he meant by, you think he was trying to protect you? I think he was trying to protect me, but I think he was also imposing his experience upon me. Because I know my dad had dated women who weren't black when he had come to the UK. And I think, you know, not that he's been explicit about it, I think that sometimes it was to do with him being an exotic option. Not someone to take home to daddy, but someone to kind of, you know, have, uh, have fun with. And, and, Not someone and, permanently valuable. No. And that was something that he was imposing upon me, that, you know, to, to be with a white woman was to have someone who only wants you because you're, you're a bit different. And then but she's going to do that, which is inevitable, which is discard you for her own kind, so to speak. And here's where... You talk about human beings being complex. It's very complex, and it comes back to bias again. You know, his bias is valid because it's on the basis of his experience, but it's not my experience, and my experiences are value. Now, if I didn't have enough self-awareness to recognize that, I would have missed out on the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, which is to be married to my wife, which I have been now for 18 years. That's you know, so amazing that you had, you had two giant hurdles to get over, mm. you know, where the voice in your head, you love your dad and you respect your dad, and he's saying, be a lawyer, and, and he's giving you this messaging, and you have to stand in the face of him. Yeah. I mean, I think people go two ways with that. Either they grow up really quick, or, or a divide happens between the parent and the son that can't be repaired. Well, he had done the most important thing, which is to raise me with a mind of my own. And, which is, and also to raise me with a sense of self. And in many ways, that being the predominant thing that he had done, that both my parents had done in raising me, equipped me to eat the chicken and spit out the bones, which is to go, I respect you, but I know myself enough to be able to challenge you on this and say, you want me to be a lawyer because you wanted to be a lawyer. You want me 
to rethink marrying this woman because of your experiences. That's not my experience. That's not who I am. You know, something that really illustrates what I'm saying is I got terribly bullied when I was younger as well. And I remember an incident where I was about, uh, probably about 15, thereabouts. And um, I was bullied by this kid who had repeated the year I was in two or three times, just because he, he just that would kid. play that kid. Yeah. Uh, he was like six four and just like lo- looked older than the teacher. You know, it was just like, what are you doing here? And he would constantly say to me, "You think you're better than me, don't you? You think you're better than me?" Because I respected my teachers, I did my work, I wore my uniform properly, I didn't play, I didn't, you know go truant from school. And he cornered me in in the bathroom one day and punched me square in the face saying those words, you think you're better than me, don't you? And I went home with this swollen jaw to my dad, just real hate in my heart towards this guy. And, um, and And I explained the situation to my dad and he said to me, was that boy right? about what he said about you? And no, he wasn't right. Okay. Carry on. You know who you are. He told a lie. Carry on. And that is what I did to him, to my dad. You're not right. Because he'd raised me to have my own mind about challenging situations. And my dad now loves my wife more than he loves me. Like, I can literally <laughs> say that to you. He, like, he will, hello, David. Ah, oh, Jessica! Daddy, are we gonna, no, where is Jessica? So, you know, it's, <laughs> he, he couldn't have been more wrong on both, which is very validating, but I still attribute it to the, the best thing he gave me, which is a sense of self. That's fascinating because we all have the voices of our parents in our head and, and maybe one more than the other, especially as men. I think we have our father's voice in our head. Yeah. But I think that if you don't get that lesson, then you're constantly haunted. Every, every challenge or every decision that comes up brings the voice back. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And I think what I hear you saying is that, is that you were able to make these decisions and not have to remake them when, a, when failure came along or when a temporary setback came along. Is that, is that valid to say? It's very valid to say. Uh, honestly, a, a part of this as well is, is my faith. You know, I was brought up as a Christian and, you know, at the age of 16, I realized that I was very much piggybacking on my parents' faith. You know, I didn't know if this thing was true for me. And so I kind of went my own way. I, I went to a different church and I, and, I, and I made this deal with God. I said, if you are real. I'm going to give you three months to turn up for me, and if you don't, I'm done. Seems reasonable. It's a fair, 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 fair sort of pact with, with, you know, the being that is God. And and he turned up for me in a very, very real way, in a way that I couldn't deny. And my life was never really the same beyond that point. And the reason I bring that up is that faith has played a big part in my decisions as, as well, my choices, because I, I pray about it. I, I look outside of myself for answers, and I've built my life on that which is not just about my own intellect, and it has served me incredibly well, um, because, you know, the choices I make 
as as an actor, I try to um, analyze them from a place that is not selfish. I truly believe that if you're making choices for the sake of money, um, for the sake of selfish ambition, I don't know that they ultimately have edifying value for you. They, those things can be a byproduct of the choices you make, but as an actor, as a man, as a husband, as a father, I try to operate from a place of what's edifying to me and those around me. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Amazon Alexa. You know, we're always looking for ways to make life easier. Everyone's juggling too much, so the ability to offload even the smallest tasks can make a difference. And one of those things that I can't believe I've lived without, especially being a photographer and a filmmaker, is smart bulbs connected to Alexa. And right now, Alexa is offering a special smart lighting bundle for our listeners here at Off Camera. Now, first off, if you haven't used this technology, it's amazing. Literally, the setup is so easy and you don't need any extra equipment. You just connect your new smart bulb to the Echo Dot and you're all set. You can set every possible mood with over 16 million light colors to choose from. Or you can control the lights in your home with the sound of your voice. Just say, Alexa, turn on the lights. And bedtime at our house is still a bit of a chaotic experience. There's a lot of up and down and water and brushing teeth and forgetting this and forgetting that. And by the time I'm in my bedroom and the kids are in bed, I often realize I've forgotten to turn off the lights in the kitchen. And now I don't have to leave my bed. I can just say, Alexa, turn off all of the lights. It's a game changer. You can also set up lighting routines to gently wake you up in the morning, help you wind down at night, or completely turn off at a certain time. It's amazing technology, and they've got it so figured out that it's just plug and play. And how much I'm involved with lighting in my job and my life, it's the coolest thing to play with. And having kids and coming in the house with my hands full and being able to turn on the lights without having to physically go over to any switches is a pretty cool thing. So you got to check it out. And right now you can get 20% off your Amazon Smart Lighting Bundle only at Amazon.com slash off camera. Every bundle includes an Echo Dot smart speaker and a single color changing light bulb. That's 20% off at Amazon.com slash off camera. But hurry, this offer ends October 31st. That's Amazon.com slash off camera. Now back to the show. To look at your path, you started in the UK. You ended up in Nigeria for six or seven years. Mm -hmm. You come back to the UK and find acting, find your wife. And, and then at a certain point, still pretty young in your career, you make this other decision that you have to move to the United States. Mm. And, uh, you know, I watched this speech you gave, this BFI diversity mm -hmm, speech mm -hmm, that you gave. Mm -hmm. Although you said you were tired of talking about diversity, and I thought, well, <laughs> get used to it because the roles you keep taking. I know. I mean. <laughs> I know. I've, I've made my bed. I'm now lying. Yeah. Up. But you told a story that you had found. Mm. Uh, the Bill Richmond story, the right. bare knuckle boxer in the mid 1800s. Yes. Just to summarize, you wrote a 30 page treatment about this guy's story and you thought it was a great piece of history mm. and you went around to try to get it set up. Tell me what you came away with from that situation um, that, that sort of made you realize that 
you weren't going to be able to make the kind of stories you wanted to make in the UK. What had happened is that I had done a show that was called Spooks in the UK. It's called MI5 when it was shown here. And it was a huge show, a spy show. And I was one of the three main characters. Right. And it had the kind of success that clearly, traditionally suggested that it should be a platform, a launching pad, the point beyond which you can go on and you've built a fan base and built a level of notoriety and you can go on and get work made and be front and center in stories that that audience that have come to know you in this very successful show may gravitate towards. So uh, you were set up like someone in Friends. Right, right, not, 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 not dissimilar. Now. Not wanting to be someone who purely relies on that, I go, you know what, let me not wait. Let me develop something that the people who are constantly telling me, we, we've got to find something to do with you. And Okay, let me not hope that some writer somewhere is writing something I'm going to be grateful. Let me go do it myself, which I did, and I worked very hard on, on, on this treatment. And look, writing a treatment doesn't, you know, I'm not suggesting that should be the point on which everyone sort of says, yes, let's go do it. But sure. it was the reasoning that I kept on coming up against, which was people would read it. I have to go on what they say, which is that they thought it was fantastic. But what kept on coming back, and one particular instance, what a very high-profile program maker said was that the, f the story was so unfamiliar that that was the reason that to make it would be challenging. Fascinating, well put together, but we don't know that it's not Dickens, it's not Austen. It doesn't have what they described as an element of treat about it, T-R-E-A-T, -E a, a treat for the audience. Their notion of a treat for the audience was basically McDonald's. You know, I know what it tastes like, I've had it before, it makes me feel yummy for a moment, let's do that again. Like the crown, let's be inside Buckingham Palace and see what that looked like in the 50s. Right. Because that's exactly. part of the history that, okay, got it. Exactly. That has its value, but to tell me that a fascinating part of British history that has black people in the center of it doing extraordinary things. We're talking 60 round boxing matches. 60 rounds. 60 rounds. 60 rounds. And this guy, Bill Richmond, was the first black sporting superstar, you know, that because his, his reputation just went far and wide. And again, a bit like a United Kingdom, something no one knows a person, no one knows a story, but when you start, he, I mean, he was, he, he was knighted by the, by, the, by, by the royal family. His boxing gym was raised to the ground only to be replaced by Trafalgar Square. Nelson's column literally sits on where Bill Richmond's boxing gym was. Really? Yeah. You know, it, it, the most fascinating story. And the reason you're going to give me for not making that is because you don't know it. Well... 
there's nowhere for me to go from there because I think the reason to make it is because there's this fascinating piece of British history that involves people the likes of which we don't normally get to see in a period drama, and we can go tell that story, and people can go, "Whoa, that's that happened here. That's our history as well," and so. That was the point beyond which I thought, because that combined with the fact that all my heroes, my acting heroes, those who looked like me and were doing the work I aspire to do, were not in the UK. They were Denzel Washington. They were Will Smith. They were Sidney Poitier. You know, there was no equivalent in the UK. And if you're now telling me that my stories are of less value because they've never been told and therefore are never going to get told. Then I am either going to die on the vine or have to plant my seed in different ground, and so that's what prompted the move to. The so、States. that was that really got you. That made you want to move to the United States because、yeah. it's a big deal to uproot your family, and big, also、yeah. I would assume within the UK you're a known commodity、right. that can work. Right. So when you make that decision, did you know that was going to come with a lot of uncertainty about whether? You could have a career over here. I knew it was coming with uncertainty. I could not have anticipated how uncertain and how traumatic it would actually be. Really? Because at that stage, my wife and I had two kids. We moved in May of 2007. I could not have predicted the very next year that there would be an economic crash and a writer's strike. Right. Boy,、um, that's terrible timing. Terrible, but great. Terrible in that those things happened. Great in that if we had waited any longer, I don't think we would have made the move. Because you would have seen that happen.、Yeah. You would have seen nobody getting work.、Yeah. You would have taken a television show、right. that fed your family. Right. Exactly right. You know. So it was. It was the last moment we would have feasibly done it. But I had fourteen months with a pregnant wife, two kids. In a country that I was just, you know, the the thing about moving here as a Brit is that you are lulled into a false sense of security by the fact that we share a language, but we actually don't. It's like you, you know, it, it, you have to learn a new way of thinking, a new way of communicating. Yes, we can understand each other. But it's very the mindsets. The it's so different, and that would throw me all the time because I would think we are talking the same language, and yet you have no idea what I'm saying, do you? Because we're just coming from a different. I had to learn American culture to be part of it, and not only as a resident of here, but as an actor to be able to play Americans. It's just a very different mindset, and so that process took quite. A long time, and it was traumatic. <laughs> There were times during that stretch which I thought I have made a terrible mistake. I am a father to two kids and another one on the way, and we had basically sold our property in the UK because I didn't want a safety net. I didn't want, when things were tough, to be tempted to go back. And there were times where I thought,、well, "You idiot! <laughs> you did this without a safety net, you know." But it ended up being the right decision because it meant, you know, we had to stick at it, and sticking at it was the right thing to do because it did eventually turn around.
Before we finish, I have to ask you about a comment you made that I didn't quite understand. You said when Selma was first making the rounds as a script, mm. you wouldn't have hired you mm-hmm. to play the role. Yeah. And I, I guess I wanted to ask why at the beginning that role seemed so impossible for you and, and how you sort of got there. For several reasons. It's, it's Dr. King, so arguably the most notable African-American in recent American history, certainly in the 20th century. Was part of it just that, oh, they don't, they give that role to, you know, Will Smith, or they give it to... Yeah, they give that role to a star. They certainly don't give that role to a Brit. And they certainly don't give that role to a Brit who hasn't done anything, you know, as far as the American industry is concerned. You know, I hadn't done anything that the likes of which makes you go, he's in the running. But I read the script and had this deep spiritual knowing that I was going to play that role. And so any time my mind would play tricks on me and say, what are you doing, even putting yourself on tape? What are you doing, calling the producers up? What are you doing, doing all this research for a role that no one wants you to play? So you did all that before you had the role? Oh, yeah. I... I I auditioned in 2007, and the director attached at the time said, David Oyelowo is not Dr. King. That was literally the phrase that came back. Amazing. So at this point, is is your wife even going, come on, I need some help in the kitchen here. (laughs) Will you stop rehearsing speeches? Oh, man. That's why I am so deeply in love with her, because, no, you know, she, she saw it too. And I'll never forget her helping me put those scenes on tape in our tiny little apartment in Studio City at the time, pregnant (laughs) with our third child. That's conviction. That's commitment. Yeah. And then that director walked away from the project. Another director came and went. Another director came and went. It wasn't until 2010 that Lee Daniels came onto the project and through another set of miraculous circumstances ended up casting me with... Actors, I couldn't express to you how much I admire being in the running to play the the role. And what Lee said to me, which was something I couldn't have anticipated, the reason he cast me is he said, you are the only one who came in without the weight of Dr. King on your back. You just showed me a human being as opposed to trying to play an icon, trying to do the voice, trying to have this gravitas. That was not something I knowingly did, but I think because culturally I'm not from here, I was more interested in Dr. King the person as opposed to the guy who my grandmother had a picture of him next to Kennedy and Jesus in her kitchen all of my upbringing. That's amazing right there that that the very act of not being from here helped you to understand him more. Yeah. It's irony. It's irony. It, it, it is irony. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about playing these historical figures. And, and my job is not to accentuate their iconography, accentuate their historical reputation. It is to show you the person behind the iconography. Because at the end of the day, we go to the movies to see ourselves. If you make the mistake of playing a reputation 
as opposed to a person, no one can engage with that. And after 10 minutes of being impressed with how much you sound like the person, you're going to switch off unless you're being shown the heart of the person. And that's always what I've been interested in as an actor, regardless of who I get to play. So it's not that I tend to gravitate towards these historical figures. It's just that they have fascinating stories that are worthy of being told. And they are human beings that are fascinating to examine, look at, excavate, and evoke on screen. Well, I, I would sure there's some voice in your head saying, well, if I, don't, if I don't wow them in the room with my impression of Martin Luther King, mm. they may not even see through that enough to get me to the next step where I can show them the humanity. To have that conviction, I think, that's, that's pretty amazing. Thank you for saying so. It's kind of innate in me. It, it's something I don't, because you're right. In my head, I'm going, gosh, should I be trying to do all the trembly voice and the, the timbre of his voice and all that kind of stuff. But I can't connect to a character through those things. I, I, I don't know that I would know how to, to do that. You can't put on the costume and go, no, I'm him. Right, exactly right. It's gotta be from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And so I think I would feel even more awkward, odd, and untruthful if I went in doing that. So I would rather do that which feels true and not get the role than do what I think they may want, which is ultimately not how I would be interested in portraying the character anyway. Which, then why would you take that role? Right. That, it makes total sense. Right. Well, I want to close on something, you know, to have you express the through line of your choices, mm. it, it makes so much sense to me where you are and the, and the things you've done. And I do think there will continue to be a predominant trend in the conversations you have about your work that are going to tie in with the themes of, of bias and race and because you are conscious of your obligation to your craft, not only the spoils of your craft. And, mm. and that, I, I respect that. I, I saw a speech, I think, I think it was a Q&A that you gave with Ava DuVernay mm -hmm. on, on I, maybe it was after a, a Selma screening. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most sort of surprising things I've ever seen happen to an actor on stage, but it, it seemed like this thought came to you quite randomly and quite intrusively, uh, realizing that you had to tell your 13-year-old son, you had to have this talk with him mm. about how to survive the next 10 years of his life as a black man in Los Angeles. Mm. And you're, there you are talking about Selma and the movie and the events in 1963 that shaped change. Mm. And then you have this thought that you have to have this talk with your son. And I just wondered if the, the contradiction hit you at that moment of, of for how far we've come, how far we still haven't come. We have come a long way. Uh, but the fact that I have to talk to my sons about how they relate to the police in a way that I wouldn't if I were white and they were white. The inclination is born out of what we see most weeks on TV in terms of the interaction between the police and young men of color specifically African-American men. And I live in a nice neighborhood. There's a part of me that goes, that's just not gonna happen where I live. But 
I see it enough on my TV screen that as a father who loves his children, I can't take the chance of not equipping them to deal with a very real thing that we have, which is that they are an inordinate amount of times more likely to be stopped by the police and to be treated unfairly by the police on the basis of their color um, than if they were white. It's just a reality, it's statistically proven. Um, I admire the police. I have had encounters with the police that are fantastic when they've come to my aid. Um, so it's not a denigration of that job or who they are. Again, like my father did for me, I have to equip them for the world we actually live in. Um, and so that's an unfortunate truism. I would rather not have to do it, but I feel compelled to do it because of the time we're in and uh, you know what we are, what we're dealing with from a racial point of view in America today. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I, I'm truly grateful that you came in here and that you were open enough to have this conversation and honest enough to have it in a way that, that makes me feel like I'm closer to you and I, I understand you and we relate. Mm. Because I think that's step one, yeah. right? And, 100%. And uh, so much of what you said has just been really meaningful to me. So thanks for coming and doing it. Thank you. I've had a great time. And honestly, you are incredible at this. I've done Thank so you. many that's interviews nice. and uh, got the amount of work you put in is admirable. Thank so you. It was a real honor. Very much. Hey folks, that's our show for today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I feel so lucky that I get to sit down and have conversations that lead into territories I never would have expected. And I come out of these conversations with a new perspective on not only art, but about life. And this episode was a good example of that for me. So if you like what you're hearing, please take a minute, tell your friends about the show, go on iTunes and subscribe to our podcast, give us a rating, go to Netflix, Go to our own site at offcamera.com. There's so many ways to experience this show. And if you like what you're hearing, or if you have a comment or a question, or you just want to reach out and say hello, you can always send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. And you can follow us on social media. We are The Off Camera Show on Twitter and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter. So take a minute, check us out. See you next time, Off Camera.